The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, January 18th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I'm a little upset. Was it because President Obama gave his last press conference today? We'll have a whole bunch of mixed up presents at some point that nobody really knows what to call. So true. And then there was yesterday when the incoming Secretary of Education announced her bear policy. You can't say definitively today that guns shouldn't be in schools? Well, I, I will refer back to uh, Senator Enzi and the school that he was talking about in Wapiti, Wyoming. I think probably there, I, I would imagine that there's probably a gun in the school to protect from potential grizzlies. But those things are not why I'm upset. I'm upset because the circus is leaving town permanently after 146 years. The Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus has announced that it's pulling up stakes, folding the tent, no longer performing without a net. The circus has given us so much. And when I attended a circus, as I have many times, I'd always get transported back to a place of blunter pleasures and unconflicted delights. Yes, I know the treatment of animals was harsh, so I think, that's, I think the circus should adapt. Ringling phased out the elephant program. That seems good. Were the lions and tigers treated poorly? I don't know. I went on a few of these anti-circus websites, and they had pictures of some sad-seeming elephants, and they asserted how unlike a circus atmosphere is an elephant's time in the wild. But then I went on the website of the World Wildlife Fund, and they were fundraising off elephantine issues as well. But there, their pictures of the elephants were in the wild, but they were dead in the wild and tuskless, killed by poachers, or sometimes emaciated in drying creeks, having their habitats stolen. Yes, I know, the circus isn't the optimal place for animals. The circus However, it should be noted, offers plenty besides animals. What about those guys in motorcycles who spin around that steel ball thing? It's not exactly a useful life skill, except when you're in the cage on a motorcycle, then you'd better master it. I went to the circus a few months ago. They had poodles, oodles of poodles. They had horses, they had acrobats, they had trapeze artists, and the clowns. Where are the clowns? The Feld family, who owns Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, also owns Marvel Comics Live and an indoor motocross event and Disney on Ice. And that's what the kids want, we're told. I'm not saying motocross, that part isn't a skill. It is one skill. Disney on Ice, Marvel guys in costumes, those, those are terrible, terrible shows. But I just can't believe the brand of Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. I can't believe the brand and the tradition and the skill and the lifestyle and the culture of the circus is worth throwing away. I can't believe that an accommodation couldn't be made to be kinder to the animals to preserve this piece of American heritage. And you can't tell me that we're living in a time that's antithetical to the circus, that the America of Donald Trump is somehow the wrong moment for a ringmaster in a top hat, hyping a clown act as the greatest show on earth. A part of me suspects this is all a ploy to shame the animal rights activists, to cause an outcry, to essentially argue that without the elephants, there'll be no more circus. But a part of me believes it and asks, where are the clowns? Don't bother. They're here. Where? In the spiel they are. I review rolling confirmation hearings. But first, speak of nostalgia. 
I long for the days of political inquiry, conservative political inquiry, marked by respect and erudition. William F. Buckley presided over a decades-long institution called Firing Line. You could not concoct in a lab a showcase for conservative thought more diametrically opposed to what passes for that today. When I was a young man of 10 or 11, I think my favorite television program was William F. Buckley's Firing Line. My father brought me to it. He was a fan of Buckley. I don't think he subscribed to a lot of his politics, but what a way with words he had. And also, when he ran for mayor, he once quipped, what will be your first task if elected? And he said, to demand a recount that won my father over. So this show, especially if you're a 10-year-old, was was crazy. This man steeped in erudition, talking to guests. His head would lilt at an angle. The show would begin with 13 people in his studio audience. And I didn't even know what I was watching, but I think I sensed that I was watching something special. And then when Robin Williams did his impression of William F. Buckley, I knew that to be the case. I once got to interview William F. Buckley. I was going to say before he died, but if uh, William F. Buckley were here, he would say something like, Oh, that would be uh, certainly very funny if the obvious was true. Joining me now is Heather Hendershot. She has written a book called Open to Debate, How William F. Buckley Put Liberal America on the Firing Line. Hello, Heather. Hello, Mike. Have you watched, well, before we before I ask this question, how many episodes or hours of Firing Line were there? Holy smokes. Uh, almost 1,500 episodes. And uh, it's hard to translate that into hours. Um, most of them were an hour, and then they switched to a half-hour format in the 80s. Uh, it ran from 1966 to 1999. And then throughout the 90s, they did these two-hour just epic debates with you know Henry Kissinger. And I have watched hundreds of hours of the show. And there are also transcripts available. So sometimes when a show wasn't available, I would read the transcript. It's better to watch, though, because you really get a sense of the the fashions and the personalities and the hairdos. And it's just a lot oh, more fun that hairdos. way. Would you say you have either watched or read most Firing Line? I definitely would, yes. Wow. So now that Buckley no longer w- walks the earth, perhaps you have imbibed more Firing Line than anyone else. I'm not sure, though. I don't know if there's a a medal or award for that. But yes, I've probably seen more firing line than almost any living person right now. Yeah. What compelled you to do so? I've been researching the book since 2011, interviewing and so on. But I would say that a new urgency arose, you know, a year and a half ago uh, as the political scene shifted and got more and more surreal and strange things were happening. And uh, debate was becoming discussion. Political discussion was becoming so uh, uncivil and 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 uh, off the rails in so many ways. And so I felt the need for this kind of book that celebrates civil political exchange but between people who really disagree, I felt like it was a good time for that. Um, the other reason was that I had written a book uh, that came out in 2011 called What's Fair on the Air? Cold War Right-Wing Broadcasting in the Public Interest. And that was about the extremist who emerged after Barry Goldwater was defeated in 1964 running for president. And everyone thought conservatism is dead forever. We're going to li- reign supreme in liberalism in America and so on. And But a conservative movement arose from the sort of ashes of the defeat of, of Goldwater. And Buckley was on the kind of legit side 
side of that. Uh, but on the other side, there were a lot of extremists who were on radio and TV spreading anti-civil rights, uh, racist messages, very paranoid, conspiratorial. They're saying water fluoridation was a communist conspiracy. And Buckley uh, helped to push those people out of the conservative movement and forge a more legitimate uh, image for conservatism and a kind of sophisticated image, not a crazy kooky image that was yeah. dominant uh, he, in the 60s. To his great yeah. credit, he purged that his brand of conservatism from the John Birch Society and from those elements. And it was not only the morally right move, but it was also the smart move. It would seem Absolutely. at the time. It was strategic. It was morally right. It was strategically very smart. And he had been a, so he was basically a bit player in that book that I wrote. And then I thought, this guy is fascinating. And I started to watch the show and I had been watching TV local TV from Dallas, Texas, and radio, uh, listening to radio from the Deep South from you know, the 60s. And it was so harmful. You know, it was so negative and dark and just terrible. And then I watched Buckley and I thought, my God, this show is making me smarter and is improving me. You know, it's, even though I disagree with Buckley about a lot of points and I myself am a liberal, I'm watching the show thinking, I am learning so much. This is such smart TV. And so I really wanted to give over uh, much time to you know, studying it and learning more about it. And that's how the book came about. Did you find that Buckley was as uh, harsh or thorough uh, a questioner, an interlocutor with guests whose ideas he agreed with as with guests whose ideas he disagreed with? There's no denying that in some, especially in some of the late shows, uh, you know, in the 90s, that sometimes it was a sort of a love fest of, oh, we all agree about everything. And and there are moments in the 80s where you feel like he's kind of running victory laps because, you know, Reagan's been elected and we, we've won and so on. Uh, but generally, one thing that was quite interesting was how he would push back with conservative guests if he disagreed with them. There's a wonderful moment in the first appearance of Margaret Thatcher on the show <laughs> where Jeff Greenfield is one of the questioners at the end. And uh, he, as a young man and before he went on to his big news career and so on, and he says, you know, in, in America, conservative women succeed more in politics uh, than, than liberal women. And do you think that that gave you an edge in, in the UK? Do you think that's a, a factor? Um, and she responded that, you know, gender really just wasn't an issue in the UK in politics, that, you know, we just judge the person on their merits and, you know, that that was it. And Buckley was like, oh, that's nonsense. <laughs> you know, <laughs> how you can't say that there's no basically no, there's no sexism in British politics. And he really pushed back. I found from watching the show, and this is borne out in the book, that when a conservative whose ideas he agreed with was just a poor arguer, he would sometimes give mm -hmm. that conservative much harder time. And there was an episode I watched before I I watched a few months ago before I uh, even knew your book existed. Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens was on, and R. Emmett Tyrell, and you could tell Buckley mm -hmm. just loved Hitchens. How could you not? And hated the poor argumentation of Tyrell. Exactly. Tyrell is arguing poorly and he's saying things that are uh, ridiculous. They're talking about a book that Tyrell has, has written called Is There a Liberal Crack-Up? And uh, in the book, Tyrell is attacking various liberals and very uh, in, in an uncouth manner, you know. And Hitchens says, you know, this is you're insulting people. You're insulting feminists and saying they're ugly and this kind of stuff. And that's just not how you should talk. And Buckley found that very appealing. Like Hitchens was calling for a more civil debate. And uh and Terrell just gets left behind in the discussion because Hitchens is so much more articulate and so much more engaging with Buckley. And at one point, Terrell is sort of floundering and he goes, Billingsgate is something to which I will not stoop. <laughs> <laughs> and he's trying to sound cool, like by saying Billingsgate. And they're just like, oh, come on, guy, you cannot keep up with our vocabulary. Yeah, I, so that's, a, that's a really wonderful one. 
I remember watching it in Hitchens. I forgot specifically what it was, but he dropped a pretty deep cut from Shakespeare. And I looked it up and stuff like this would just happen all the time on Fire and Mm -hmm. Line. You got Mm -hmm. smarter. But I I wonder at the time, you know, without the Internet to track these things down, how did it play? How did it play on public television and among viewers who probably weren't used to much like this? Well, it found its niche, you know, at a moment where it was the mass media environment, CBS, ABC, NBC, and PBS, you know, and we didn't have this kind of niche stuff like we have today where there's a channel for gardening and a channel for pets and a channel for, you know, a home improvement and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Somehow it found its niche of people who wanted to see smart political argumentation and and from left, right, and center. I mean, if, if you were a leftist, you were excited to see black power folks or feminists on the show, civil rights activists. And if you were on the right, you were pleased to see Buckley stand up for himself and, you know, voice the conservative opinion. So it did find a small audience. Uh, Buckley always said uh, with some pride that from the beginning, his ratings were exiguous. <laughs> <laughs> exiguous means scanty or meager. I had to look that up myself. Uh, you know, he had low numbers and he felt like, well, that that's okay. You know, a lot of people don't want to hear intellectual discussion. It's at a moment when Gunsmoke and and uh, Green Acres, you know, those were popular shows. Uh, they were pretty broad. And he understood that he would have a smaller audience. And, you know, frankly, it was never a profitable show. And he felt that that was okay. There are some endeavors that you do just because they're they're the right thing to do and not because they're profitable. So he was a free market capitalist and he had a, a lot of money and he had a lot of best-selling books and so on. But Firing Line and his Journal of Opinion, National Review, were not big profit makers. I mean, they were not profitable. Um, they were, you know, small kind of endeavors in certain ways with a, with ultimately a big impact. I sometimes call firing line a sort of gateway drug to conservatism where conservatives would watch it uh, who were sort of forming their identity. And then they would go on to National Review and learn more about it. Last year, a uh, film came out, Best of Enemies, about the... Uh, debates between Buckley and Gore Vidal. And these were not firing line debates. These were ABC News debates. And uh, there's a famous, infamous episode where Buckley calls Vidal a queer. I assume that the point of the American democracy is you can express any point of view you want Shut up a minute. No, I won't. And some people will follow Nazi, and the answer is that they were they were well treated by people who ostracized them, and I'm for ostracizing people who egg on other people to shoot American Marines and American soldiers. As I know you don't as care. As far as I'm concerned, the only sort of pro or crypto Nazi yeah. I can think of is yourself. Failing that. Let's, I would let's, only let's say that we names. can't have now listen, you the right of the Stop calling me a crypto-Nazi. Let's, let's stop calling I'll names you and let's in your get, goddamn face, and you'll stay plastered. Do you think that was his low point in this form? That is such a, that movie Best of Enemies is so good. And I, I really recommend it highly to everyone I talk to about this. Vidal, the, the film shows how Vidal really did his homework and really pushed, pushed and prodded at Buckley until he sort of broke him insofar as Buckley lost his cool and insulted him. And he was so upset with himself that he had used curse words on television, insulted someone. And it was something that sort of... Uh, uh, haunted him in certain ways. If it was a low point, as it were, um, he recognized that and he, you know, he felt wrong about it. And it's very different from today where people insult each other all the time on TV and have feuds and so on and, you know, don't express sort of remorse about it. Does a show like Firing Line not exist today because, A, there's just not the climate for an hour-long show, B, the audience can't be expected to have that attention span, or C, there's no William F. Buckley? Uh, all of the above. <laughs> uh, but do you really you know, think it, that if there was someone yeah. so singular and so talented yeah. and somehow 
he convinced, you know, PBS or some, you know, there are mm-hmm. 400 networks, some networks. I you, know. YouTube. So, to, to give him a so shot. There's so much TV yeah. out there. I yeah. know. And yeah. part of the issue is Buckley was, he was very adamant that he was not an interviewer. He was a conversationalist. He wouldn't say, do the sort of Q&A that the interviewer does. He wanted to have an open conversation. And that's harder to find on TV today. You know, even the more intelligent discussions, it's one, you know, the newscaster is the objective person just asking the straight up questions and then the answer, you know, responds. And so, so uh, we don't have... Um, like really good models for this out there. But I'd like to think that that there is a place for it if you could find the right host. Have you seen anyone out there in the media who could maybe be the host of such a show? I have not. I will say that part of what made him great was his sense of humor. And it was wry and subtle and it wasn't uh, knee-slapping, funny kind of stuff. But he always had a sense of humor about politics. And I think some of the best political discussion has a humorous edge, certainly like what Colbert used to do on his show on the Colbert Report, there were moments where I thought that was kind of Buckley-esque. And of course, it was very different. It was the way it was formatted and the little bits and pieces, the way it's chopped into bits. But, you know, you have an author on the show and just sit down and talk about their their ideas and and bring a sense of humor to it. And there was an openness there. And also on uh, on John Stewart, when he was on um, The Daily Show, uh, you know, he would have interviews that would run long and they would run the extended version uh, on the website. And these were not hour-long discussions, but something about the openness and the sense of humor was sort of there. So I, I, I can't see either of them as doing like the new firing line, but it's nice to see models out there that evoke that kind of generosity of spirit. So you're a very erudite person. You are a self-described liberal and there you are watching 1,500 episodes, maybe more <laughs> if you had the hours. Did, fi- did any argument he made change your mind on anything? Hmm. Well, I would say that I was uh, very open. I learned a lot more about conservatism, and I have a lot more respect for certain aspects of the position than I did before. But I, I do think it does say something that this is a show about debate and about politics, and this is the stalwart of conservatism, and still, he couldn't change your mind. And there's no one better, uh, both stylistically <laughs> and marshalling the facts. If anyone could change your mind, it would be him, and you, you came to really like him and like spending time with him, but he still couldn't change your mind. It says something about... Well, if minds can ever be changed. Yeah, but you know, he made me more open to talking to people on the other side of the aisle. And that's that's mind-changing. This is a moment where we need to be talking to people we disagree with. Right. What do you think Buckley would have thought of uh, the Donald Trump phenomenon? Oh, boy. Well, we don't have to guess too much in that he wrote an article in Cigar Aficionado magazine in 2009 in which he addressed, uh, he discussed Donald Trump and also Jesse the Body Ventura, who was at that point running for governor of Minnesota. And uh, he said they that Trump was a demagogue and a narcissist. So I think he would uh, be appalled by uh, Trump in every way and, and much in the way that National Review uh, was appalled. And, you know, you may have seen the cover of National Review you know, they, they oppose Trump and there's a, a there's a Yosemite Sam right on the cover as a caricature of like Donald Trump with guns blazing. He, I think he would have been proud of the journal taking that perspective. Heather Hendershot is the author of Open to Debate, How William F. Buckley Put Liberal America on the Firing Line. She's a professor of film and media at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. You know it as MIT. Thank you so much, Heather. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Mike. 
And now the spiel, the first thing to know about all of Trump's nominees, be they halting Betsy DeVos or the southern foe avuncular Jeff Sessions, is that they're likely to be confirmed. They're not certain. The Senate Foreign Affairs Committee wants another crack at Rex Tillerson. But right now, I looked at the prediction markets, and there's no Trump pick who's been through hearings, who is trading below a 90% chance of being confirmed. Well, there is one who hasn't gone through hearings yet. Politico reports that Trump's pick for labor, Andrew Puzder, owner of Carl's Jr. and Hardee's, is having second thoughts. He cites the pounding he's sure to take and the paperwork he's been asked to file. You're thrilled to the power and the glory. You suffered through the agony and the ecstasy. Now witness the pounding in the paperwork, the Andrew Puzder story. Pounding in the paperwork sounds like two plot points of every cop movie I saw in the 70s. Callahan, do you know the paperwork I'm going to have to do after your little stunt? And let's take him downtown. Maybe we could see if he could remember where he last saw Carlito. That's the pounding part. Sorry, chief. I see a nail. I just got to give it a pounding. I'll be doing paperwork for a year. So it is an irony that paperwork is what's giving the future labor secretary pause. Any kind of work, really. But it's no more an irony than we all house grave concerns about Ben Carson's ability to lead the housing department. And then there's Betsy DeVos, who wants to head education without having demonstrated much of a head for education. New Hampshire Democrat Maggie Hassan asked DeVos in her hearing about the Individuals with Disability Education Act. That's a federal civil rights law. So do you stand by your statement a few minutes ago that it should be up to the states whether to follow it? The law must be followed, federal law must be followed where federal dollars are in in play. So were you unaware what I just asked you about the IDEA, that it was a federal law? I may have confused it. And perhaps you heard that Grizzlies and Guns clip. Perhaps you saw Elizabeth Warren toy with DeVos, like a grizzly toying with a Wyoming school child. But the impression that I got, the impression of this woman at sea who didn't have a command of the facts, was of a person who had never been strenuously questioned in her life. I predict that she will get confirmed and then never submit to a hostile broadcast interview again. Over at Health and Human Services, Rep. Tom Price answered some questions about pharmaceutical stock sales he engaged in. See, Dr. Price did not heed the warnings. The side effects of innate immunotherapeutics might include headaches, yelling, anger, heavy vetting, occasional loss of temper, defensiveness, backtracking, seeing red, and an erection lasting six hours. Price, a doctor and member of Congress, at least answered the questions coherently, if not always satisfactorily. And some members of the committee, like Michael Bennett, Democrat of Colorado, were happy to play into Price's persona. I should tell you that I have never shown a knee, my knee, to any nominee before Dr. Price came to my office, but he gave <laughs> me some free medical advice, and I'm grateful. How that. you doing? Free health care. I'm terrible. It's terrible, but I'll talk to you after it's over. It's not because of you. I can't, I can't ask you, but, I, but I, I'm curious as to whether or not you've gotten the MRI uh, yet. Today. Today. Good. So I'll let you know. Uh, wow. Can you imagine that at another hearing? Uh, Mrs. DeVos, I want to thank you for stopping by my office and helping me with my SATs. Did not realize how often E was the correct answer. But the price hearing was buttoned by Elizabeth Warren, who has found her métier. I mean, we knew she was good, but in these hearings, she is like Nadal on clay. She left Price with this warning. You know, you might want to print out President-elect Trump's statement, I am not going to cut Medicare or Medicaid, and post that above your desk in your new office, because Americans will be watching 
to see if you follow through on that promise. This encapsulated a key aspect of these hearings, that appointees, no matter their own personal foibles or extreme stances, were most often hurt when asked to explain, either to excuse or to adhere to, their future boss's statements. Like Trump's pick for U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, here with New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez. Did you specifically discuss Russia with him, though, as part of that? I, I, Russia came up. Yes, it did. Um, just from the standpoint of that we were going to have issues with Russia. Uh-huh. There are no greater specificity than that. No, sir. There Issues. We've got issues. He knows we've got some issues. I thought I took that to mean Crimean Ukraine. Maybe he thinks it means new mattresses. Didn't get specific. The Democrats did not give every nominee a hard time, and the Republicans didn't give everyone a pass. Rex Tillerson awaits the blessing of Senators Graham McCain and Rubio, and Mattis sailed through the Armed Services Committee. Wilbur Ross, a legendary industrialist, seemed to impress as Trump's pick for commerce. Of course, Bernie Sanders does not sit on the Commerce Committee. He stumped Betsy DeVos when he asked her if she'd be sitting before him in the Education Committee if she weren't a billionaire. And then he rejected Tom Price's very premise. Should people, because they are Americans, be able to go to the doctor when they need to, be able to go into a hospital because they are Americans? Yes, we're a compassionate society. No, we're not a compassionate society. In terms of our relationship to poor and working people, our record is worse than virtually any other country on earth. We have the highest rate of childhood poverty of any other major country on earth. And half of our senior older workers have nothing set aside for retirement. So I don't think compared to other countries, we are particularly compassionate. But my question is, in Canada, in other countries. And that was my lasting take from the hearing. It was satisfying to hear a smackdown of platitudes and bumper sticker superficiality. So at least there was that, and possibly at most too. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube wants to honor the Ringling Brothers. They were Albert, August, Otto, Alfred, Charles, John, and Henry. Mary Wilson wants to remember the Ringling sister. Her name, Ida Lorena Wilhelmina Ringling. You know, because if the mom's busy calling seven brothers, why not have an eight-syllable sister to throw in there? Slate executive producer Steve Lichtai asks, what about Bailey? We know Barnum, at least we always say Ringling Brothers, but what about Bailey? Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, is here to tell us that James Anthony Bailey, according to the New York Times, surrounded the circus with conditions that justify its classification as an institution. The gist, our mind is wrapped up in the circus and our busy brain is wrestling with the minutest details of its management from sunrise to midnight. Or that might be James Anthony Bailey. Oopru deperu duperu and thanks for listening.